Hello, hello. Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Didi Perry. Preeti, my love, it is wonderful to see you. You look great. It's another sunny day, and here we are facing a dual pandemic. <laughs> but we're still here. We're here. We're, 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 we're getting through it day by day. We are getting through it day by day. You know, what, one of the words that got utilized so much when COVID happened uh, was unprecedented. This is just so unprecedented. Nobody knows what to do because nobody has experienced anything like this in our lifetime, right? And suddenly, in the last couple of weeks, as everybody knows, there's this parallel pandemic that has arisen that is gripping not only America, but other parts of the world. And that is the pandemic against racism. And that one, unfortunately, for everybody, I really think, really knows, this one is not unprecedented. This is something that we, the violence, the loss of life, the outrage, we have seen before and for far too long, in my opinion. And today's episode, um, today's conversation, we have so much to cover. You know, normally you and I would, would have our, our banter, and I certainly want to give you an opportunity to to just say whatever is, is on your mind right now. But I also would suggest, if you don't mind, that we keep it quick because our yeah yeah we talked about this we're good we can jump right in we can well, jump right in I, I didn't want to silence you my friend you know you my sister <laughs> and I like to give you the, the space uh, no no it's 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 good because I'm super excited to talk to our guest today and as I mentioned before we started I'm a bit under the weather I think um you know it's definitely physical I'm not feeling so great I do think a portion of it is to your point there is a significant amount of unrest happening in the world. And I often question if our surroundings and the physicality of our surroundings, you know, impact our well-being. And we know that answer to be true. Uh, what I am excited about, though, and hoping that we cover today is um, almost the catharsis of conversation with our guest, because uh, I think he has a lot of incredible experience in what we're going to talk about and will offer um, many, many ideas and, uh, we'll share some of those experiences and I bet will offer us some hope. So I'm hoping to move through this conversation and end up feeling much better. All right. No, no pressure, no pressure at all. <laughs> it's your job now to, to lift us up. I Hopefully I can. Hopefully of I course can. you can. You already are. You got this sunny smile on you. Yeah. Looks great. You know, for, for those who are listening, Check it out. Check out the, the YouTube version of this because it really looks <laughs> very, very uplifting, right. encouraging this, this beautiful afternoon. We are honored. We are thrilled. We are privileged to have with us today. Uh, can I say your full name? You can. All right. Listen, we're going to cover some sensitive stuff. I give you, you, you have waived your right to anonymity, brother. <laughs> we have with us the distinguished Esquire. Pernell Telfort, and I got to just shout it out at the beginning. Pernell and I are classmates from the real HU, Howard <laughs> University uh, School of Law, and it is just such an honor to have him. And I certainly 
I wanted to have him on anyway, in light of everything that has happened. I urgently wanted to get him on because he has such a unique experience professionally and has so much information to share that I think will be beneficial for for all of us to hear. Um, Purnell started out his career as a litigator at a big international law firm, but then transitioned into working for the government in various capacities. Um, he has been a prosecutor trying misdemeanors and felonies. He has worked as a city attorney for the law department for the city of New York, where he had to defend city employees, including police officers, who were <laughs> accused of committing civil rights offenses at the federal level. And he also is most recently a legal teacher, a professor of law. And so he has sat on so many different sides of the issues that we are just going to dive on into. So first of all, Purnell, thank you for being here. Welcome. This is the first time I'm seeing you, certainly since this pandemic, possibly since 20. No, no, I saw you right before, right before it got really crazy, but it's great to see you again. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, let me ask you, you are one of the best damn lawyers that I know. And I, I truly mean that. Uh, I think you are an incredible master of persuasive speech. And I just wanted to know, is that something that is innate for you? And was a career in law something that you always dreamt of as a little child? You know, can you tell well, us where this all started? I don't, I don't know that I always dreamt of uh, being a... A lawyer. I think uh, when I first started, I wanted to be a doctor, actually, and I thought, ah, oh, it's going to take forever. So let me just let me just try this this law thing. And so when I was in school, I was like, ah, oh, let, let, let me let me let me partake in this uh um this um you know this uh, legal profession. I took a a course uh, a constitutional a law course, and I just uh, ever since that point, I, I thought. Well, I, th I actually thought I was going to be a, a constitutional uh, lawyer or a, a appellate advocate. So that's sort of uh, led me to where I was. And then when I was in undergrad, I also did some um, mock trials and the bug was there. And after oh. I did some mock trials, that's where it really kindled. The bug to be in the courtroom? Yes. Okay. Oh, that's a bug. Never bit me. It is. It is. <laughs> Indeed, it never bit you. Spent some time there. Yeah, I still do. Oh well. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, this is something that I wasn't anticipating asking. Uh, but since you mentioned first you wanted to be a doctor and now you went on to become a lawyer, um, was that something that was encouraged uh, from from the time of, of being at home? Are is your family from the states originally, or because we have spoken to a lot of people whose parents are from other places or the first generation. Uh, can you, is, yeah. I'm, I'm first generation American. My parents are from, from Haiti. Um, and they came here uh, for, for opportunity, obviously. And I was uh, born in, in the U.S. So and was, that, was it like, okay, you got two options. You become a doctor or a lawyer and don't, don't, that's don't it. mess this up. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, at least it does seem to have at least, uh, sparked your your intellectual curiosity because you're outstanding at it. Um, you know, nationally um, and even in big cities in America, there aren't that many 
black prosecutors. Can I ask what was it that made you want to go that route coming out of big law? Because you're working at a big firm and you get all this money and the prestige and all the things, the fancy dinners, the car service and the days before Uber. I remember it was like a big deal to get a black car home. That, that was true of the black car, black yes. car experience. Yes, but then to-, to XYZ, I think it was the- the name of the company. We use that one too. <laughs> but anyway, um, but but why become a prosecutor out of all the options that you could have pursued going from from that platform? What made you want to be? And for those who might not know, the prosecutors are the people who try the cases on behalf of the state. So when somebody commits a crime, it's the prosecutor who has to decide whether they're going to indict, whether they're going, well, the jury, grand jury's involved. But they're the ones who are the lawyers in the courtroom saying, Your Honor, throw them in jail or not. Or not. I'm simplifying (laughs) it, but why did you want to do that? So I had, um, when I I was in in law school, I thought, you know, I had a plan. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. Then I'm going to leave that in a few years. I'm going to become a, a, a um, assistant United States attorney. And then after that, I, that'll parlay me into uh, my next thing, whether I be a judge, you know, uh, an advocate, uh, trying cases. But that was sort of my trajectory and what I wanted. And then the economic uh, crisis happened and I got laid off. And so I was you know, transitioning, trying to figure out what I would have, what I would do. And it, it just so happened that um, right when, when I was getting laid off, I got two interviews for, um, for uh, jobs at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I interviewed and long story short, things didn't work out. So now I'm laid off and I decided to literally, uh, technically volunteer for the U.S. Attorney's Office in um, the District of Columbia. Wow, that's a big, big step to go to volunteer. It was. Well, I didn't want to sit around not doing anything. And I figured that's 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 what I wanted to do. And so let me just volunteer. Well, why why did you want to volunteer there? What was it about that office in particular that made you? You could have volunteered at at a food bank. Well, I could have, but um, obviously I went to school in D.C., so Mm -hmm. I I, I like the area. Um, But at the time, I think that that was like the only one that allowed um, attorneys to come in and and, and work at the time. But I think uh, subsequently other offices have done that. But, uh, you know. Yeah. Was there a thought in your head that said, if I go volunteer and do this, I will be able to glean X information from that, or I will learn something in this area that I potentially couldn't have learned somewhere else? You know, was there something in particular? Well, the thought was I would ride the, um, the, uh, the recession out, um, um, at the U S attorney's office and then parlay that into another gig, either at that particular U.S. attorney's office or another one. Mm. Um, and immediately prior to taking that job, I had already interviewed for the, uh, the Eastern District of New York. Um, so the, the, uh, the U.S. attorney's office in Brooklyn. But at the time, the U.S. attorney had just been nominated and they put a pause on the, um, the hiring process. So they were waiting to the, so the U.S. attorney could be confirmed, um, put into place. 
and they were going to start the uh, the interview process. But and can in I the just interim, in to just to to make it a little more specific for for those who might not understand, he just said so. Loretta, Loretta Lynch had been nominated by President Barack Obama to become the Attorney General. Yes, but if US anybody, attorney. U.S. Attorney, yeah. But if anybody recalls, that took months and time. months and mm-hmm. months and months. It was the longest wait that any U.S. attorney had been put through to just get the Senate confirmation uh, with Mitch McConnell at the helm. Yeah, I said it, but she finally <laughs> got her appointment. But there was a hiring freeze, and that affected Purnell's appointment. So go ahead. Yeah, so, and after that, I was like, well, let me just, let me just... And she's a black woman, I just hope. Yeah, let me, let me, <laughs> let me just uh, do something that's in the same vein, and then, you know... When 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 she's confirmed, I'll get the second interview and then get hopefully proceed to the third one and then become a U.S. attorney. But it didn't work out that way. So so I ended up in D.C. Well, you're in D.C. and you're working as a prosecutor. I am curious. Did you feel that you were better situated based on not only just being a black person, but being one trained uh, at a school that emphasizes being a social engineer and not a parasite on society and really fighting for, you know, taking the role so seriously that you're you're trying to make the world better. Uh, did you feel that you were better positioned uh, and perhaps more necessary in the role of prosecutor than, say, perhaps some of your peers who are also prosecuting, you know, alleged uh, violations of the law? Uh, against people who who look like you and me. Well, as a prosecutor, um, I never viewed myself as any different than any of the defendants uh, that uh, we were prosecuting. To me, they were me, right? Because uh, we grew up in the same uh, neighborhoods, not the exact same neighborhood, but I recognized and understood the struggle. So being friends with people who ended up in the criminal justice system, you sort of develop some some bit of empathy for a criminal defendant because you understand that it's not people people commit crimes uh, for different reasons, and you know it doesn't make them bad people because they committed crimes. You know, uh, and the only difference between me and someone who committed a crime is you know luck, opportunity. Um, I had opportunities that uh, some of them may not have had, and you know I made made the most out of it. So, to me, I never viewed them as as any different uh, than than me. So it was never a situation where I was looking at I was looking down at someone. They they were essentially my equals. It's just they were on the wrong side of the law uh, this one occasion, but I never viewed them as uh, any different than than I was. Do you think your peers? shared that level of empathy? Well, I can't speak for what was going on in other people's head, but I I, I don't know. Um, I would think it's literally impossible for the majority of people to feel that way based on their own thought processes, you know, unconscious bias. We talk about this often. I, I, I you know, it's it's actually surprising to me to hear you say that. And I commend you for that, but I don't think a lot of people would have shared that same sentiment. Well, I think uh, 
like prosecuting people in prosecuting people. I think um, justice without compassion is a form of injustice. Mm. Um, and let me explain. Um, every, everyone comes to the everyone comes to the sort of being a defendant, uh, sort of in different places. Someone who is a a defendant who has uh, stolen bread versus someone who has stolen a TV to me are different. They committed the same crime. You may have a different crime because of the the value of the property, but it's, it's essentially property theft. It's not just or wouldn't be just to give someone who is essentially trying to feed themselves sort of the same treatment as someone who is tr just trying to get a an electronic. So you have to balance compassion and justice so so you can achieve justice it uh maybe this is a question for the both of you uh but in that in that statement alone it would seem to me that we would run into uh, a few gray areas as you go through the process um of defending right and so it almost seems easier and i'm asking whether you agree or disagree it seems easier to stick with the law as opposed to dive into different versions of what that law is based on the crime. Well, I think you have to because if if you if you don't you 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 may operate uh, justice in a way that is unjust. Uh, for instance, um, marijuana. Back back then, it was not it was not in vogue for uh, marijuana. Uh, you know, leniency in terms of marijuana that wasn't being legalized. So my view is, you know, the way the way law is enforced in terms of certain areas, uh, marijuana is smoked essentially at the same or higher rate, uh, depending on which study you look at. And so if you're if you only have 13 percent of the population, why do we make up a, 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 a large percentage of the uh, the arrest for marijuana? So. That has to do with when you say we, do you mean black and brown people? Correct, people of color. So that has to do with the way it's enforced, right? So you don't have you don't have a service bringing you marijuana because there were services uh, to bring people marijuana. You sometimes buy it in open air um, markets, and if let's say you are policed in such a way where you have more police contact, you're more apt to be caught with marijuana than someone who gets it delivered, smokes it in their backyard, not in the streets, and they're using the same drug, it's the same same crime, but one person is more apt to be caught than the other because of the way in which they receive it and the way they carry it and the way they smoke it. So same crime, because enforcement is different, you 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 may get a unjust result because two people smoking marijuana to me is the same crime, but uh, sometimes it works out where one person is prosecuted as opposed to another, and it's only because of circumstance, not because of criminality. You know that that makes me uh, think about my first week of college. I had orientation, and they put you in groups, and you're getting to know people, and they had. Uh, sophomores and juniors who are like our orientation leaders. And there was this really friendly guy. He kind of reminded me of um, uh, Shaggy, that Scooby-Doo's friend. <laughs> um, 
And he was very cool. We went on a three-day bike ride. Like, we, they dropped us off in Pennsylvania, and we, like, had to drive back to New or pedal back to New York. It was great. Wow. Slept in tents on the side of the road. Anyway, I digress. But this guy at one of our little campfire chats, he was like, you know, it's going to be the best couple of years of your life. And let me tell you, drugs and alcohol flow as free as water. So whatever you want, you guys, <laughs> just, it's all available to you. And I mean, I'm coming from like such a buttoned up, you know, highly disciplined home of my mom, I promise. And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Where? What is this? But this was uh, this is a white kid. Um, I have no idea what his economic background was, but there was no sense uh, that he was communicating or expressing fear about being arrested. And all of those years that I was at school, it was all over the place. And I never saw a single arrest for that. Uh, to, to your point, uh, it's real. It's very real. But that is on the campus of a school with, you know, lots of money and then it's very privileged and elitist and all that stuff and then you travel just a couple blocks up deeper into harlem whole different story um but okay so you're a prosecutor but then you get back to new york and you start working for the new york city law department tell us how that shift happened well uh interestingly enough um so after my stint as uh, as a volunteer uh, U.S. attorney at the, in D.C., I get several interviews to become a permanent um, uh, U.S. attorney. Uh, I interview in um, the Eastern District of uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. I interview in the Middle District of Florida, um, Jacksonville. And they were going to pay you. Yes, they were going to pay me. I was going to be a regular <laughs> AUSA. And then – benefits benefits and then hiring freeze happens mm. and so it, it it's so funny um at the interview um for the um middle district of florida i get the call uh hey you want to interview for the new york city law department and i was like well you know this hiring freeze is going to happen i don't know what's going to happen so sure i'll, I'll take the interview so I literally right before the interview with the middle district is when I uh, was uh, told that I, I could, uh, they wanted to interview me for the law department. So I took it because I figured something's going to happen. I might as well uh, I might as well just see um, what 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 the New York City uh, law department had to offer. So going in, did you know that they were going to have you working with police officers or did you expect something different? Oh, no, I knew. I knew. And you took the job anyway. So <laughs> I like to throw a little <laughs> shade. So, it's called shade. I know. I know. That's, black Twitter don't come my, for me. I, I don't want Black Twitter to come for me. I no. did represent police officers. No, but you know what? I want to hear about that because right now we are in a moment, a historic evolutionary moment, I truly hope and pray, and police on mass are under uh, a lot of scrutiny. Uh, I will say that as, as neutrally as possible. Can you tell us, did your view going in of the cops, 5 evolve or shift or turn throughout the course of working with those individuals? I don't think so. Um, 
So what I basically going in. What did you expect? Like, well, were you like they're the pigs? I'm, you know, I'm not. No, no. Um, <laughs> what did you? As, as, as a prosecutor, you actually work hand in hand with police. Um, so it was never sort of a situation where I didn't didn't trust trust him. Um, so the way it works is. I have a, a a healthy dose of skepticism of what everyone says until you prove me, until you prove me wrong, until you can show me the facts that match basically what you're saying. So there was never a moon landing. No. Go ahead. No. So basically, I had worked with them before. I know that uh, you know times uh, officers do good things. And I know that at times that officers do bad things and it's, and it's up to you to sort of get at the facts or determine the facts based on what you're told and based on all the evidence that you have. Okay. There's, there's a long history, as you both know, of police reform in, in America. You know, we, we, this has gone back many, many, many years. And were you, was that a thought process going in? And I, I think where I'm going with this is along the lines of, if I'm part of the system, maybe there's a way, an opportunity to learn more to help enforce change. Okay. Okay. So the the thing the thing about uh, being on that side, mm-hmm. there 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 are times where mm-hmm. you get an arrest, you're like, you know, you didn't have enough. Right. Okay. And let me walk you through what you need to to establish this crime. And you mean and I would enough evidence. Yeah, you didn't have enough evidence, and the evidence that you had is not legally sufficient to support the charge. Uh, like an example, um, uh, like uh, it's basically like you're, 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 you're trying to, to cause a riot. I, I forget the, because the, I, I switched to New York and so I forget what the, what the term was, but you know, you have to, it has to be something so extreme and outrageous that is likely to incite violence or incite a riot. And, this person was just being loud and boisterous. So it's not, it's so loud like and boisterous. Jumping yes. the turnstile at the, at the sub of the subway, you can get arrested for that. Yes. You technically can get arrested for that. Okay. You can so, get arrested for a whole host of things. Okay. So, but to, to her question, did you go in thinking, well, I might be able to, to get my hands on some of the gears to, to right some of the wrongs. As opposed yes. to just being a bystander on the outside. Yes, um, I think in terms of the way you you um, you talk to them and you approach them, and you tell them, "Hey, look, this is what you need. This is what you don't need." I I figured you can guide someone or help them along the way by by giving them essentially legal advice of like how how to how to how to make a prosecution work and you know what evidence you need. Um, when you have this type of arrest, you need to do this, you need to do that. And that, I think, would help them become, or I, I had hoped, would help them become uh, better police officers um, in, in doing their, their job. What surprised, you, what surprised you the most the first six months on that job? Um, I think... It wasn't. It wasn't what surprised me the most, like what what was going on, because I think I had a 
a, a healthy understanding of the criminal justice system because uh, I had friends who went through the criminal justice system. I had family that went through the criminal justice system. So I, I knew how it how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, I guess, made There's... me realize that, you know, I, I, I belong. Um, you know, I think there's, in going through the interview process, you know, you, you go through so many, uh, so many uh, no's and, you know, oh, you're not, you're not quite ready. You need this. But then when you get there, you realize, you know, I, I, I can hold my own. I, I, I could do this. I think nothing about the criminal justice uh, system or what, what was going on there changed my perception of police, but it had an effect of changing me as a person. Yeah, Talk I think, to us about that. You know, just to clarify my question a little bit, Pernell, um, I think by the time this podcast drops, there's going to be, there is currently if, um, a very heavy emphasis on the NYPD. Um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, we, we know that the council has asked to cut the budget by a million dollars. I think that was yesterday. And I, I mean, not have all the facts correctly, but I think where I'm going with it, this is, you know, the insight into the NYPD, the insight into working with um, police officers that are currently under scrutiny for their behavior during some of these protests. Was there anything about interacting with the NYPD that surprised you? I don't know that it necessarily surprised me. I think it's more of, you know, it's human nature, right? Mm-hmm. You know, officers, uh, we expect them to be like a, you know, robotic uh, um, enforcer of, of law, but mm-hmm. they may have had a bad day. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes having that bad day may 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 show show up in the workplace. It made it made me appreciate and understand that, you know, they're 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 people like they have flaws, they do good things, they do bad things, you know. It's almost like me looking at a criminal defendant. I I understand that there's there's a backstory and there's a backstory to a, and I don't think that people leave the house and it's like, "Oh, I'm going to violate someone's rights." Things, you know, your interaction with the person, they trigger something in you um that causes you to react in a certain way. So it's it's all about like i think human nature it's like they have they have faults and they have virtues that everyone else has uh did you find that the officers with which you worked and advocated um to defend had in your view been how do I say this? Do you think that they had been asked to seriously examine their own potential for racism or racism or their own bigotry that might show up on one of those bad days that they had, coupled with the power that they have in interacting with civilians? I mean, to take it a step back, I don't think society in general has even grappled with that. So if if, if we haven't done so as a society, I don't think uh, the officers have 
have grappled with that in, in, in my mind. I don't know. That, does, I don't know that that's necessarily true, but uh, I feel like there are you, ways that um, that subtle things show up that you don't even you don't even realize. It's just innate. Like I think. Well, like, I, yeah, I would push back on that, Purnell, because my innate. Well. I wouldn't say innate. It's it's yeah. it's learned. Well, when you when you societal. see a diff, when you see a disparity between responses to people of one race versus responses to people of another race, and specifically a pattern of leniency, even gentility, when encountering white people, and repeated not in all circumstances but repeated instances of violence as it relates to their encounters with black people are you saying that that is a response to something that's just innate in these officers i, I wouldn't say it's innate um in officers i think or is it a, an innate part of being it, raised was a, in a, a society that has not confronted its racist roots. I think innate is probably the incorrect word. I think given... I think sometimes you go in thinking, oh, I'm going to a high crime area. This is, this is what's going to... This is what I'm going to encounter. And it may not necessarily be that you are encountering that. It's just... I'm expecting this to happen. Expecting what? Like, you you may go in th expecting a negative interaction because you're told, oh, you know, this area, people don't respect the police. They don't do X, Y, Z. So you already come in with, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get pushback. So I have now, to be you, firm. Can I ask, and I'm, I'm not trying to interrupt you. I'm just trying to, to just clarify who the voice that you are rep representing, are you saying your typical white cop, or are you saying your typical black cop, or your typical Latino? Who are you talking about? Police in general. I don't think it's. So, do you think that a person who is being called to their own neighborhood where they grew up, they know the people, they know that they go to the church, they belong to the local gym, would have that response when they get a call that something has happened? in their own community? Or do you think that perhaps someone who lives on the opposite side of New York, who just works that beat, does not interact socially at all with people in this part of town and are now told it's a high crime area, that they're gonna have the same perspective going in? I think I think you hit something on on, on, on the head, nail on the head. I think if you if you grew up in the area, right? you know sort of the the mores and so like if 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 i'm in an area i know oh i see two kids uh fighting on the street one person may see this fighting and i'm like oh the guy's smiling oh they're just slap boxing because i know that's that's sort of what they do they're slap boxing it's as someone who's not from the community may not know that it's actually a form of play and may perceive it as hostile behavior as opposed to someone who's in the air. Oh, they're friends. They're just slap boxing. So that's just an example. So I think to the extent that you are in the neighborhood, you understand uh, how things work, how, how people interact with each other. I think 
you're more you're less likely to to overreact to situations uh, as opposed to being someone from the from the outside coming in. I think that has some I think that has some um, some validity. Well, oh, go ahead, Peter. Um, Pernell and Dee, I wanted to read you something which is pertinent to this conversation. Um, and you may have read uh, an article in the New York Times by activist Miriam Kaba. And this just came out, I think, yesterday. And there's there's a so she's I'm going to I'm going to quote and read you this because I'd love to understand, Purnell, from your perspective, um, what you think about this, this passage. She says there is not a single error in United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people. Policing in the South emerged from the slave patrols in the 17 and 1800s that caught and returned runaway slaves. In the North, the first municipal police departments in the mid-1800s helped quash labor strikes and riots against the rich. Everywhere, they have suppressed marginalized populations to protect the status quo. So when you see a police officer pressing his knee into a black man's neck until he dies, that's a logical result of policing in America. When a police officer brutalizes a black person, he's doing what he sees as his job. Hmm. Now, it's opinion, so I want to put that out there. But but what when you hear that, what is your response? Being so close to that community. I mean... The origins of, of police is is I think uh, dead on. I think that's that's how that's that's its origin story, right? It, it started uh, with uh, slave patrols, and you know, some of the history is correct. So I don't know. I I haven't grappled with how how sort of an individual um, takes that in and 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 exercises police power but there may be something to it and and that's not to dis and that's not to cop out but i think there may be something to it but i just can't say uh and in each individual officer takes that with them um to their job i can't really say that but i but i do know that policing has a sort of It has a a um, sort of a. a I'm, I'm do, trying to do look for the right word. Do you think there's an ideology that that accompanies being a part of police culture that she's speaking to? There, there, there may be, and I and I don't want to say yes or no because obviously, when I when I represented. Uh, police officers, I represented individuals and not the system as a whole. So it's, it's very mm. difficult to indict the, the, the system um, uh, to each individual person, but they're, 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 I'm not going to say that that may not be sort of what's, what's, what's working. And, um, and I want to point out for now, like, I think this is, this is why I asked because, because of your proximity you know, people can read and understand and make sweeping statements. And what I appreciate about this conversation is that, you know, as as a black man, you're saying, yeah, there's something there. But listen, I worked with individuals 
And I worked with individuals and I had the empathy and compassion to understand that they each had their own unique experiences that they were bringing to the job. You know, what I also, my response, my first reaction to hearing you, and thank you for bringing that up, Preeti, I was, we have a, a doctrine in the law called the fruit of the poisonous tree. Okay, yes. Purnell knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but in basically, it, it is saying that any anything that is the product of something that is defective in and of itself is going to be defective and its mm -hmm. validity is going to be questioned. Right. And so you, I don't see any way to divorce what we are seeing now from its origins, how this whole project got started. Mm -hmm. okay. At the same time, my second thought was and is, Listen, I have relatives who are officers. I know in my community in Brooklyn, which has been flooded, like much of New York, flooded with cops. I've never seen this many cops. You, you go to the Brooklyn Bridge and there's like a hundred officers. It was not like that just like a month ago. And now it is. And legit, like more of them look like black and brown people than white people. I think the, the the majority of the police force is now um, is now minority. white. Yes. Well, they are the majority actually, and so it it complicates for me the issue only because I generally do not just as a black person as a black woman I don't have the same response to a white officer as I do to a person of color who's in the same uniform. And I will make an illustration. I was in uh, an open field. I'm not going to say where it is because it is my secret place to escape to in this quarantine. <laughs> but it was an open field somewhere in all of five boroughs. And the closest person to me was solidly a quarter of a mile away. And I took off my mask. And this was a couple of weeks ago. So this was before, you know, it became like just optional to wear a mask in public. My God. Whole other conversation. But we'll do a quickie on that. But uh, I was having a great conversation with girlfriends on the phone. And then this cop starts walking over to me and she's like, ma'am, ma'am. And I was like, oh, shoot. And because they were starting to give people, uh, ticketing people and giving them summonses for not having a mask on in public or for not socially distancing. Now, I certainly was socially distanced, but I was not wearing my mask. I had just taken it off because it was hot, you know. Those things, I mean, are you guys struggling with them? I am, but I'm still wearing them all the time, but not in that moment. And as she's coming closer to me, I'm like, shit, I'm sorry. Shucks, 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 shucks. Your I'm mom going. is not going to be happy <laughs> at all. That. Sorry, mom. Sorry, it's my last one for this episode. Uh, and I'm just thinking I'm about to get this big ticket. Oh my gosh, is she going to take me in? And as she gets closer, she reaches for her pocket. And I was like, oh, my God, she's going to shoot me over this. She probably and was giving man. you a, a mask. Why'd you ruin my story? <laughs> I, I knew that's He's how like, it was going to uh, go. <laughs> and so she was like, and I was like, and I started babbling real fast. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I have my mask right here. I'm like, looking at my back. I'm just, I'm, I'm going into my bag so that I can pluck my, my mask. I promise you'll have it. And she's like, no, 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 no. And out she pulls a bag full of masks. And she said, sis, you're fine. You're not near anybody. You're out here by yourself. You're not endangering anyone and you are not at risk. I wanted to give this to you. 
And that to me, what I had a Bali moment right there of like, oh, they're not all bad. You know, well, we, because we, we're also in New York. I mean, I think we have to look at, you know, the United States on a whole, right? And we're talking about Purnell's experience in particular. And I, that doesn't surprise me for New York. Um, well, I've also had horrible experiences. Yeah. New York officers. And we, so that was my first positive one, but it was with someone who looked like me on, you know, on two levels, gender and, and yeah. race. And, you know, I would like to think that uh, a white cop would have done the same exact thing. Sure. I, I would love that. I would feel safer if that was my view, but I have had more experiences of hostility yes, with I those agree. officers. And so it, it, it's, it's complicated. Right. Um, but you know, Pernell, earlier you had mentioned that doing this work, it didn't so much change your view of the officers, but it did change you. Can you explain what that that transition or that change was? Well, you know, in, 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 in coming to the law, you know, there's always that, am, am, I, am, I, am I good enough, right? And do I belong? And, you know, in, I think sometimes you may get people who evaluate you harshly, um, unfairly, and professionally. You, don't, you, you don't, you don't, yeah, professionally. So you don't know until you step outside of them and you realize what they were saying that that may be just their style but there's there's more than one way to to practice law there's more than you you have to make it your own style and so i developed my own style and my own way of doing things and it was just as effective and did you come to develop more com confidence in yourself as a lawyer through yes. that process yes absolutely so um i think well, part of part of part of the reason is uh, I think the way you were trained or t uh, trained as as a corporate lawyer, you know, it's it's very piecemeal. You do this one little section, and then you, you no, know, I'm going to do this, and then when you are tossed in and you have your own cases, and you're like, what was so hard about this? I could have done that when I was uh, a junior associate, and so you realize, you know, there are gatekeepers; they do their their thing, and you know. It, it is a method to bring you along, but I think to the extent that you allow people to get their own footing, that develops them into better attorneys. So why give that up once you're like, wait a minute, I'm just as good as the next person, if not better at the job. Why not stay and continue in the work? What changed? Where? At the law department. Well, I think I, I think I get restless um, when uh, when I've developed mastery in a subject, right? So I think when I got there, I hadn't done uh, Section 1983 um, litigation, so there's a learning curve. And as I'm learning, uh, you know, you start to get your bearings, and then you become you become good, and then you and then you realize, well. Now, now I want to attack this. I've done that. I've done, I've done a motion to dismiss. I've done a summary judgment motion. I've done a trial. I've done depositions. I've done like these things so many times. And I'm like, 
what's next? You know, I get restless. Like I need, I need a new challenge. So it ceased to be, it ceased to be challenging. And I think when you cease to do something that is not challenging you, 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 you give a sort of a, a half effort, right? And part of part of me, uh, I don't I don't believe in 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 in, in half effort. So it was it was a a, a constant uh, struggle. Well, I don't want to give half effort, but I'm not challenged to really give full effort. So it was a internal uh, conflict uh, within me. And I think at a certain point, in order to become good. You know, you had to spend so many hours at work. And then that cumulative effect of that battling with me internally and putting in that many hours, not taking vacation, um, I burned myself out. And I never, after four years, I never got it back, really. And so it was just time to move on. In any of those cases... um... Were there any cases that that moved you or that stopped you in your tracks or that made you fundamentally question what you were doing there or what was next or even police officers in general? Um, I don't think anything fundamentally changed me. I think in in going through the process, you you realize, look, people, people, this you you attack it this way, and that's part of the reason why I kind of like being a government lawyer. Mm. I I have, as a government lawyer, you have twin the responsibilities. The security of knowing that those tax dollars are always coming. Sorry, I couldn't help it. That's not true because tax dollars have wow. diminished. Wow, I just want to take a moment and say you're getting most of the shade in this episode. So thank you, my <laughs> friend, because I, I usually know. get it. <laughs> you all can discuss that later. It's only because you're tired. I'm holding on. <laughs> So basically, you have an obligation to protect the city, but you also have an obligation to protect the citizens at large. So you can't, you can't go so far one way to, uh, to, you know, to protect the city's interests at all costs, and then you produce an unjust uh, result for citizens. And at the same time, you can't be too generous to the citizens to the extent that it costs the city. So you got to walk that fine line. And that's always, and that's, that's a, that's a good place to be. I think that's because you have to do justice for both. You can't, you cannot just, it cannot be just for the client in and of itself. So that's what I kind of enjoyed about uh, doing government work because at the same, at one point, on the one hand, you have to look out for the city's interest. And at, at, at the same time, you also have to look at, the citizens at large, as opposed to working at a, uh, you know, doing corporate law insurance, where it's all I have to focus on is my client's interests. That 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 duality is 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 a good thing. Did you ever feel conflicted, or or did you feel like you know what I'm 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 throwing I'm throwing the game. I'm just do it for the people. The, the city got plenty plenty other resources. We're gonna uh, just take the L on this one. There. You don't have to name any names. So. It's in vogue to talk about qualified immunity now. Right? What's that? What is that? So qualified immunity basically is uh, an officer has immunity from lawsuit uh, for, you know, acts that may 
be violations of the Constitution, right? So you may have a situation where the officer clearly violated the Constitution, right? And this is in general. I'm not saying this happened. And at the same time, the Supreme Court has said basically qualified community will protect, and I, and I like this quote, uh, all officers ex except for the plainly incompetent and those who knowingly violate the law. So basically you have to, you have to be a doofus or someone who just, <laughs> I'm just going to do the worst thing. But there, there are other areas where you're not a doofus, but you, you kind of violated the law or you did it, you, or you violated the law under a good faith belief. So there, there were times where it was like, I have a qualified immunity argument, but uh, this person really spent time in jail for something they didn't do. So it's that balance of how far do you push uh, qualified immunity when doing so would, would produce an unjust result? For the citizen. C citizen. But there are other situations where, uh, where the officer didn't do anything wrong. And sometimes it's like, yeah, you, you, this is, this is kind of a frivolous lawsuit. Like we, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have brought this. So it, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's that you have to walk that fine line. Like, so sometimes you, you leaned on one side and sometimes you leaned on the other. Is that what to I mean? To balance the scale. Basically. To balance the scale. Okay. The scales right. of justice. I can get with that. Um, you know, Purnell. Yes. I think you're fabulous. And you emit such a wonderful, calming quality. And you, you know, you come across as, as, and we'll get to what brings you hope in a minute or later, but as hopeful and enlightened. And you know what I want to know? I want to know what's pissing you off right now. Um, cable news. Because, <laughs> because I think uh, they do a disservice. Because I think part of it's like, like I hear the defund the police, and you know, I I understand what it means. So I think they need to do a better job of really explaining what it is. It's not uh, officers and will no longer uh, be on the streets, and you know, it's going to be anarchy. What they're talking about basically is. Well, police may not need to deal with someone with mental health. They may not need to um, do traffic uh, violations. Let's save them for things that, you know, that they don't need to deal with. So they don't have to deal with uh, calls from Karen. God, you know, I um, great answer. And so, you know, what I kind of heard in there is I'm, I'm a little pissed off that the education of what's happening and what reform looks like is unclear based on media. And so if, if media, I'll leave it at that as opposed, right. If, if they could be and people more... in general too. Yeah, people sure. In general too. Okay. It's funny. Even in that answer, it didn't really seem like you're pissed off, but I'm going to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> he is cool as a cucumber. He really is. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to evoke, you know, uh, but I, 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 think the, I, I think it's not piss me off. It's like, when, when are we going to sort of 
really grapple with the issue. We're, we're beating around the bush. Oh, you know, oh, it's training. It's no, it, I think it's, 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 it's more, there's more there that we need to fully address. And we're going to, I feel like we're going to keep, we're going to be in the same sort of pattern if we don't really address the root cause. Like, um, prevention is uh, better than the cure. So we got we to gotta get in there and start preventing stuff as opposed to figuring out remedies to uh, fix what has been broken. You know, people, people die. Um, so we have, to, we have to get this under, uh, under wraps. What do you think what? the big... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask. taking the words from my <laughs> what, is, what is the number one thing, in your opinion, that needs to get done? to go after that root cause. We, and we also, have, what is the root cause? Yeah, I... I we, we, have, we have to grapple with, um, with, with racism. And part of, part of racism, and I don't mean racism like you call, you call me a racial epithet. Uh, I think we have to grapple with racism in terms of housing. So if you... If you put someone in an environment where they go to school, the schools are bad. Now they have to, having bad schooling, they have to look for a job. Now they can't compete. And well, where do they go? Like, what are their opportunities? Because if 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 you if you stymie someone's ability to to be the their 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 full selves, what what what? what other choice do they have right so you limit you you sort of block every opportunity to really progress and you have no outlet or no means uh to 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 um to realize your full potential because there there are people who i i i i i assure you that uh, are in uh economically depressed uh areas that are with just a little bit of opportunity, will be able to do great things. I view myself as that. You know, I, I didn't grow up in like a middle class uh, 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 economic stratosphere, but I had I had the ability, and I got an opportunity to go to a uh, to a to magnet programs. I, I and I was able to get sort of more opportunity than, than most, and I made the most of it. But I assure you there are other people who have the same ability who were not realizing their potential. And so we have to grapple with the systems that are in place that produce those results. It's not okay that we have a system where not everyone is uh, uh, you know, maximizing their full potential. And people will say, Oh, you know, all education is the key. Yeah, but okay, education is the key. But how does education look in an economically depressed area? Well, I think back to your point of media being super clear on things like defunding the police. I think the thought is or the hope is is defunding the police and, and sort of moving billions of dollars to providing health care, housing good jobs, education, right? I think, and, and so you make an important point there um, on, on what people are hearing and listening to 
in that one component of defunding the police, but where those billions could go is what really would, would start to, you know, pummel at the root cause. And also, I want to raise the, the question about, or the, the issue, or the side of the issue, because I, I presume, now from what you're speaking about, is the lack of resources and investment in black communities and, and communities of color, because it's not just black people. Right. At the same time, what do you think needs to be addressed as as it relates to white people? And I will say this over and over and again, because Toni Morrison so brilliantly said, racism inherently is internecine. It is as pernicious to its target as it is to its actor. And the Yes, I agree everything with what you were saying about these disparities. But what about the education that is not happening for the person who was raised to believe that there is something that makes them better, more worthy of life? I mean, we in, I'm that, that, we that, talked that, about this yesterday. And I'm sorry you didn't bring it up, but you, I remember you know in our conversation earlier you were saying you know when a lot of folks come out, a lot of these cops come out you know, to start their day and they have a really tough day on the job, you know, they're just looking to get home to their families. And it's like, well, the guy that you just killed also was trying to get home to his family that, too. That, that is and true. What, I, I how always say get that. get to that point? How, how does that person get to that point in their mind and in their thinking where their life has a premium on it and the person on the other end, you know, of, of their weapon, of their fist, of, of their bench in the court, is not seen as fully human. So what do you think needs to be done to address that side of the coin? I think, I don't know how that, how that happens, but I think people have to get away from the, 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 this notion that they are deserving more than other people. I think because there's, there's a, if you believe that you are entitled to certain things uh, or more worthy of uh, obtaining certain benefits than another person, then it's then it's easy for you to uh, justify inequalities. Well, I deserve this, so that's that's the way it's going to be. So I think people have to grapple with the, the fact that at the end of the day. Uh, Race is a construct, and you're no different than I am. You live in a society where you're told that you're better, but you're no better. And to really grapple with that and really figure out how we move from a place of of race, because there there are tons of things when it when it comes to race. Because well, my whole my whole thing is, well, what makes you white? color of your skin? Well, there are quote-unquote black people that have your co same color of your skin. Your hair? There are black people who have this uh, your same hair type. There are Indian people who have your same hair type. Asian people. So what really makes you white? And when, when, you, when you finally address what it is, it's you, you need someone you, you, you need to be white, right, to justify the messed up the messed up ways in which society is now now been well if because 
if we if we if because if you take take it from the position that we're all equal, right? What causes these uh, these massive inequalities? There's a system, and that system is the system of racism, and yeah. we have to grapple with that. We only have a few minutes left, and and you know, D, I I, I have to say to that point too, it's it is probably something that generationally needs to get discussed and honed in and changed on a parent to child level parent to child right and i i think that the you know there's no i don't think there that that requires a lot of work on an individual which they should do but but i think as you I, my hope is those conversations are happening um i read today something around protests the majority of protesters are white for the first time I don't. Time. Right. Well, so so. Um, we Thank could, you. Thank you. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. Because okay. the way I M see it, much, it's like, it's it's like an abolitionist. It's to me, it's like the abolitionist movement. You know, the, the formerly enslaved Africans needed the participation of, right. of everybody, of the white people, in order for freedom to. So. To I think it's, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but that's why we're talking about it. And that's why, you know, we have to continue to talk about it. I know we could go on for a long time and okay. we just got, we, we got the, we already got the notification that we have to oh, cut it, but I want for now, for now, what gives you hope? Oh, and also I know, and you have a, a beautiful son. He has no idea what's going on. Uh, how old is he right now? He is, he is turning two in uh september so okay. he is he still I, I would gander to say he doesn't even know what his air quote i'm making air quotes race is and he, he doesn't. probably doesn't know what what preethes is or or you know any of the friendly multicultural folks in your village um what gives you hope for him i my hope is that he is not stymied by uh, the cultural creation of race. And, uh, you know, until until we start seeing each other as you're my brother and you're my sister and we're no different, we're, it's not going to change. So my hope is that he grows up in a society where we disavow the notion that uh, the color of your skin, uh, your the texture of your hair makes you better or worse. So that's, that's, that's my hope for him. I think we leave it there. Thank you for now. For now. Thank you. This was terrific. Thank you for being so candid and honest. And uh, I, I look forward to the, the wonderful things that you are going to continue to do, educating the young minds and the future legal scholars of America. Absolutely. <laughs> I will uh, I will come back if you will have me. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. We love you so much. Thank you for taking the time and until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect, and we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.